Okay, now this is a verse-by-verse exegetical uh, church. We go through the verse, we go through the Bible verse by verse, except for every once in a while, we'll do a topical study. But those are aberrations, and they're okay. Today's aberration is on salvation, and in particular, it's about <clears throat> this phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus. And what does that mean? And in my opinion, that is a short phrase that means a whole lot more. Now, a lot of my opinions are developed partly because of, experience of uh, experiences that I've had, <clears throat> but, but mostly it's hopefully based on the Bible itself, which of course is the Word of God. <clears throat> anyway... One of, one of the reasons why I start thinking about these things is because I wonder, why did I get saved and so many people I know didn't? Um, I also wonder why first century Christians turned the world upside down. Uh, they, they, they had amazing success. Christianity spread like wildfire across the entire Roman Empire, and people got saved left and right. Um, what were they doing differently than today? Because today, many Christian parents cannot even lead their own children to salvation. Something is wrong, and I don't think what's wrong is on the end of the, on God's end of it. It's on the human end of it. And there's different things that uh, pop out at me in the Bible <clears throat> that lead me to believe that we're just not doing things right and that, that we've got problems that need to be um, eradicated. Uh, another experience I had was when I was a seeker, and I really wanted to know what God was all about. I, I met some Christians, and they told me, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. <laughs> now, looking back in hindsight, I think they were real Christians who had their heart in the right place. They just didn't know enough to inform me on what it was to receive salvation. They could tell me what Jesus did for me, but they couldn't tell me how to receive it. Um, they had a fish on the line, but they couldn't reel me in. And then I wondered, well, what happened if I would have died then? I would have gone to hell. What happens if I would have given up? What happens if my life would have became so busy that the cares of the world would have choked out my interest in God. I was not saved, so could I have lost that interest? I think so. How many people are we losing today because of those situations? Uh, anyway, they got their verse right out of the Bible. It comes from Acts chapter... 16, verses 30 and 31. And this is the story about the Philippian jailer. He went to work that morning. He didn't even have God on his mind at all. 
but he had some highly unusual prisoners, a bunch of Christians, and there was a bunch of them, and they were all thrown in prison, and it was his job to guard them. Guards back in those days were very picky because if your prisoners escaped, you would have to serve their sentence. And if you had a whole bunch of them, they'd kill you. So your life was on the line. So this guy, he had these uh, Christians in prison. They started singing songs and you know hymns and that sort of thing. And anyway, there was an earthquake. All the doors of all the uh, uh, cells came open, and they could have easily escaped. They could have easily overpowered this one guard, but they didn't. They said, don't worry about it. Nobody's going anywhere. And uh, he wanted to become a Christian. <laughs> and so he asked them in verse 30, it says, and, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A great question. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, here's the indicator that there's more to it than that. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Now, it turns out, you know, he got saved. There are other verses that are very uh, similar to that in the Bible that would lead you to believe that all you got to do is believe in Jesus, whatever that is. Uh, one of them is in um, John 3.36. And it says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now we got two witnesses saying all you got to do is believe in Jesus. And we got a third one, 1 Timothy 1.16. And look what this one says. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me, first, Jesus Christ might, sh might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, a lot of people, that's it. That's as far as they go. They say, we got three witnesses, those three verses. They conclusively prove that all you got to do is believe in Jesus. But my question was, what does that mean? They couldn't elaborate. And I'm going to try to prove to you guys that it goes way beyond that. Okay. Now, here's some biblical reasons why I think um, it goes way beyond that. Um, how we present the gospel to people affects... How many people get saved? Uh, let's go backwards to Acts again, chapter 14, verse 1. And look at this awesome night that happened. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude... Both of the Jews and the Greeks believed. So, 
soul spoke, it affected how many people got saved. Uh, another good one is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse, um, what am I have here? 19 and 22. First Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. <clears throat> and to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by, me, by all means save some. So he was tailor he was tailoring his gospel presentation to what particular groups that he would be speaking to. And this affected how many people would get saved. Uh, I don't know how good we're doing that today. Anyway, Paul and others just like him helped turn the world upside down. And what, what a difference it would make, I think, that if every, that at least one week out of every year, uh, the every church in the country would spend one full sermon on teaching about salvation and getting getting detailed about it. Uh, the previous church I was a member of, they would uh, do a series on giving and what would happen after this three or four week series on giving would be done. Giving would go up. <laughs> they get they get more money. Uh, if they did a, a sermon or two or three on volunteering your time, guess what? They would get more volunteers. If they did a sermon series on how husbands and wives ought to treat one another, then about two or three months later, you get people up front and they would give their testimony about how they put this into practice and their marriage is better. Well, it's the same thing with salvation. If salvation is just a tagline at the end of some other topic, like you would see on a, some of these Christian television shows, and, and they go by in less than 60 seconds, uh, that's not really enough. You need more. Um now, in this talk today, I am going to say the word salvation a lot. But that word is a highly misunderstood word. A lot of people think it's a ticket to heaven, but it's not. It's, it's more than that. It's a prerequisite for going to heaven. Um, my definition for salvation is going to start <laughs> with the reason why we need it in the first place. Uh, God originally created a perfect uh, world. It had perfect plants, perfect animals, and perfect people. 
perfect people, Adam and Eve, were given an option to partake of the divine nature or reject God completely and his absolute moral laws. They chose to sin and reject God. And when they did, they fell from a level of moral perfection down to something less than moral perfection. Now, how much farther did they fall? I don't know and I don't care. Because anything less than perfection will never go to heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. God is a perfect being. You cannot have a close and personal relationship with a perfect being, God, unless you yourself are perfect morally. You'd, you'd be very uncomfortable around God anyway. Um, so that's not going to change. So the only solution to that problem is you've got to be brought up from whatever level of imperfection that you're at all the way up to perfection again. And in Second Peter, we'll be told to partake of the divine nature. And the divine nature, of course, is morally perfect. And you cannot fall from it. God cannot fall. God, God will never sin. God can't sin. It's impossible for him. Every sin is a repulsive thing to God. Now, when we ask for salvation, we're asking to become that good. So how good do you want to be? Now, I was never told this for a long time. I was finally, I did get saved. <laughs> those, those people didn't do it for me, but, but I finally, because I was interested in prophecy, I was listening to a Hal Lindsey program one time, and he said at the end of his uh, television show as a tagline was, was you've got to ask God to uh, make you the person he wants you to be. So I did that, and that's when I got saved. Uh, anyway, so the definition I'm going to use for salvation is it's a transformation only God can do. And he will change you from the imperfect sinner you are to the perfect saint that he wants you to be. That is your prerequisite to enter heaven. There's nothing to keep you out at that point in time. Now, those people that I was speaking to, I think part of the reason why they didn't want to go beyond that one verse was they were afraid that they might be teaching salvation by works. Well, I believe 100% that salvation is by faith alone. There are numerous different um, verses in the Bible that teach that. Uh, I don't know if I need to go into that very deeply with this group, because I think most of you, if not all of you, are saved. But um, salvation is by faith and faith alone. Okay, now, let me get directly into my talk, which I'll start right now. <laughs> and it's going to, I'm going to try to prove that um, believing on the Lord Jesus is a way bigger deal than just... Um, what it might seem, that it's a short phrase God uses to stand for everything that has to do with salvation. And I would say that really, as I was studying for this, you could almost call the New Testament the gospel. 
Because it teaches you everything that you need to know about salvation. And, and Jesus is the answer to the problem. He's, gonna, he's, he's the one that uh, does all the saving work. Uh, but anyway, let's go to John chapter 1, verse 12. And it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So we got two words there, receive and believe. Now some people teach that those are the same thing, that those are synonymous words. I don't think so. I think that if you really believe, of course you're going to receive. I think that's just like, sort of works like baptism. If you're a saved person, you're going to get baptized because that's what you're supposed to do. Whereas if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he died for you, he paid the full penalty of your sins, all that stuff, that, uh, of course, you're going to receive his salvation, especially the more you know about it. Uh, in Acts, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, In verse, verse 19, we'll start with, it says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So he's talking about the message of salvation. He's bringing these people, and he says, I didn't hold back anything. In other words, it was a full message. Uh, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have a new thing introduced to this whole salvation message, and that's the word repentance. That's another one of those words that are highly misunderstood these days. It can mean so many different things to so many different people. To some people, it means to stop sinning. To others, it means to be sorry for your sins. It goes beyond that. Uh, my definition for repentance is that it means to ask Jesus to kill off every sinful desire you have and build into you every godly desire that God wants you to have. The end result of that process will be you'll be a morally perfect person at the end. You'll be partaking of the divine nature. Um, later on in that same chapter, it mentions in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Okay. And we can go to Romans chapter 10. One of the best salvation chapters in the whole book. Because we're going to hear some more things. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. 
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and that means that you consider Jesus God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So now we're introducing some, some knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done for us as part of the salvation message. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, or whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, see, that's what those people should have told me. They shouldn't have told me, believe on the Lord. When I asked them, what does that mean? They should have said, well, one of the things you've got to do, even though it's not considered a work, is to ask for salvation. That's what that means, to call on the name of the Lord. Ask for it. Salvation is so easy. Anybody can get it. All you've got to do is ask. It's there for the asking. And now we can go to Second Timothy, uh, verse chapter three, verse fifteen. And listen what Paul says to Timothy, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. Now, what kind of scriptures did Timothy have when he was a child? It couldn't have been the New Testament. It had to be the Old. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So, what Paul's telling us here is that a certain basic understanding of scripture has a lot to do with with the salvation message. So, you see, it is more. Um, now, we can go, we can stay, whoops, not stay, we've got to go back to Romans chapter 10, sorry. Um, so, step one of salvation He's actually hearing the gospel. Now, sometimes you don't get much time. You're talking to people that are in a hurry, and you got just seconds, so you got to make it short. But other people have kids, grandkids, brothers, sisters, neighbors, people that you can talk to for a longer period of time, and you can give them more information. So depending on who you're talking to and how much time you have, you tailor your uh, message for the conditions that exist. But step one is hearing. Uh, look what it says in the book of Romans. Chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom, whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And later... In verse 17, it's going to say, So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear the gospel before you can believe it. 
If you've never heard it, you can't believe it. That's a huge problem for a lot of people in this world. They never hear it. Uh, But even in our country, I think it's a huge problem. People are only hearing partial gospels. They're hearing false gospels. They're hearing distorted gospels. And they're hearing highly minimalized gospels. That's what I was hearing from those people. I was hearing what I was hearing was accurate, but it only went so far. So therefore, I couldn't get saved on that. I needed more. Um, when I grew up, I was Catholic, and I heard a partial gospel that was distorted. So it's two things. Two things wrong with it. <laughs> it's partial, and it's distorted. For example, I'll give you a partial gospel, and a lot of people think this is the full gospel, but it's not. Jesus is God. Jesus came to earth. He became a man. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sins. Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and he is ascended back up to heaven. If you believe that, you are a Christian. No. I believed that when I was a Catholic, and I was as lost as that chair right there. What was wrong? Well, first of all, that's only a portion of the gospel. It's all right on the button accurate. You must believe those things, but there's more to it, and the receiving part of it, and other things that Jesus will do for you after you get saved. You know, he will transform your life from sinner to perfect saint. Um, The other distortion that they threw in there was they said he died to pay the penalty of my sins, but they didn't say he died to pay the full penalty of my sins. Uh, They leave that out. (laughs) Their, Their actual teaching is that Jesus died to pay most of your sins, and that little bit left, you've got the ability to do, and you can work for that and earn that, and then you'll get in. That's how they slip in the the works end of it. And so that becomes, because it's only partial and because it's distorted, it becomes a false gospel. Okay, now, the more complete and accurate the gospel is, the more apt a person is to receive it and get saved. The more skimpy and distorted it is, the more apt people are to reject it. Now, I'm going to rely on some of my experiences as in my youth. Uh, I went to Catholic grade schools. I went to Catholic high schools and, and high school. And um, the kids there... I would say close to half of them rejected Christianity entirely. And they're atheists to this day. And they were atheists then too. Um, Why was that? They weren't getting the real gospel. They assumed what they were hearing was Christianity. So they rejected it. And then when somebody else would come along later, they were quick to reject no, Christianity. Okay, no good. I've, I've been there, done that, not going there anymore. They weren't really rejecting biblical Christianity. They were rejecting their misunderstanding of it. 
but but that's a big problem. Uh, another problem with hearing is we get the gospel out of context. We will get the facts about who Jesus is, the facts about what he will do, but but it's not in a context that, that makes any good sense. Um, for example, if you don't know anything about your fallenness, which is the bad news, then the good news doesn't make any sense. So the Bible will tell us the Greeks would see the gospel as foolishness. The Jews would see it as a stumbling block. They'd see Jesus as the stumbling block. They go, no, okay, yeah, we get the, we need salvation part. We just, not Jesus. (laughs) Uh, But the the Greeks, which our society is more in line with the Greek world than it is the Jewish world of the first century, um, those people saw it as foolishness. And people today see it as foolishness. They don't understand that anything less than perfect is just simply not getting into heaven. Okay. Step two. We need to understand the the gospel. Okay, great. Somebody told me the gospel. They did it in theological words. But I don't understand words like justification sanctification, salvation, repentance, redemption, and on and on and on. There are many words that none of us use in our day-to-day lives. And if you're an unsafe person, you never use those words. So you don't know what they mean. And yet people are hearing (laughs) professional preachers who, quite a few of them, like to impress people by how intellectual they are. And so they'll use those words. But they're not communicating anything to anybody, even though what they're communicating is accurate. So we've got to understand it. Now, is the impetus on us to the the unsaved person to learn those words, or is it on us to explain those words or to use different words? Now, we've got to be careful if we use different words. Because we can't change the gospel message at all. You cannot change what's perfect here in the Bible. You've got to deliver the actual message. But you can use words that that communicate uh, the the salvation message to whoever it is you're speaking to. Ouch. Whoops. Okay. Let's... Is this on? I'm on? Oh, all right. All right. We can go to Matthew chapter 13. One of the best... Matthew 13. One of the best chapters on understanding and how important it is because the word pops up all the time. So starting with Matthew 13... Verse 13, just count how many times the word understand or understanding pops up. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, 
and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, before, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away. What was sown in his heart, this is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now I'm going to skip ahead just to verse 23 here real quick. And it says there, it says, But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Okay. Now, another good one on that, on understanding and, and delivering a message that is understandable, is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And verse 9. And Paul will tell us, So likewise, unless you utter... Now, he's talking about tongues. But I think there's application here. <laughs> so likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what's spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. And then finally, um, in Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And that word manifest means to make it clear and understandable. So that's what Paul was praying to do. Okay. So far, so good. This is pretty easy stuff. But uh, our third step here is going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of your need for salvation. Uh, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. And you don't have to worry about that one because that's just what he does. <laughs> so that's an automatic. Now, the fourth thing is, when you're receiving now, you've got to confess you are a sinner by nature and that you have violated God's laws in the past. Ray Comfort is a very good guy on this. What he'll do is he'll give people different absolute moral laws that God has in the Bible, and then he'll ask them if they did that. You know, you told a lie. Well, yeah, that makes me a liar. You stole anything, that makes me a thief. Um, but there's a bunch of them. If, if, if they uh, want to dodge all those, there's telling lies, stealing, adultery, 
being self-centered, that's against that's the violation of one of God's absolute moral laws. Um, you're supposed to pay proper respect to God always. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Is anybody doing that? I don't. I never do that. I love myself more. Every once in a while at this door, you can see strangers walk by. I love me more than I do them. Because I don't know them. I love people. I want them all to go to heaven. But as much as I do myself, you know, that's a real high standard. Um, God loves us as much as he loves himself. God doesn't even love, love himself. You know, God the Son loves God the Father and God the Holy Spirit with all his heart and all his soul and all his strength. But he doesn't, but God's love is outward. It's not towards self. We're the ones that have this self-love. And God understands that. So the rule is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, once you get saved and once you wind up in heaven and, and all the evil drops off of you, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. You'll be in heaven and you will love everybody. Just as much as you do yourself. And everybody there will love you just as much as they love themselves. That's why heaven's a nice place. Um, and I mentioned the other rule. Uh, love God with, all your, with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nobody's doing that. That's too high for us. But when we're in heaven, that will be natural. And it will be easy. It won't require any willpower whatsoever. That will just be who we are. God is already that way. Uh, and then finally it says in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 5, we don't have to look it up, but it's 548. It says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Nobody's doing that one. Nobody can even claim to do that one. I've met lots of people in my life, and I've met people who think they're better than me, <laughs> and they also think they're better than most everybody else, but I've never met anybody that thought, they were perfect. Okay. These rules help us recognize that we are sinners who need salvation. If you flunk on any one of them, even one time in your life, you are out. Unless you have a Savior who can transform you from the sinner you are into the saint God wants you to be. Okay. Now, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. We have to repent of all of our sins. Now, the dictionary definition for repentance is a change in mind about your sins with regret. And I don't think that is the biblical definition. I think it goes further than that. Um, some people think the definition of repentance is to feel sorry for your sins. But Judas Iscariot felt sorry for his sins, so sorry that he went out and killed himself because he betrayed Jesus. Some people think it means do better, you know, a real resolve to improve yourself. Well, that's 
not going to happen for one thing. And secondly, that's not what repentance means. Some people say it means stop sinning. Forget about it. That's not going to happen. A sinner sins. That's why sinners don't go to heaven because then sin would be taking place in heaven. They're not going to quit even there. So that's why the, the transformation. That's why we have to partake of the divine nature. Anyway. Biblical repentance. You have to desire every sinful desire that you have to be killed off and every godly desire to be built in. That is the most radical change in mind that you can have of your own sins is to have God supernaturally kill them all off and make you a morally perfect saint. That will get the job done. And that's the line that we've got to cross. When I'm presented with the gospel and I'm, I'm told everything that Jesus did for me, paying the full penalty uh, of, this, of my sins on the cross for me um, and everybody else, um, then I still have to receive that. And you receive it by repenting. That's why earlier um, it, it would say, those who believe in his name, those who receive him. Two different things, but, but they're together. They're, they're connected. Um, and that's, well, what, what else do I even say? Okay, well, let's look up some of this repentance stuff here. Matthew, chapter 16, verse All right, 1624. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And when he says take up your cross, he means death penalty. Kill it. That's a necessary step. Um, let's see. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans is loaded with salvation stuff. Romans chapter 6. Verse... What shall we say? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? See the logic he's using? 
if we told Jesus we really wanted to die to sin, then why would we want to continue living in it after we get saved? It doesn't make any sense. Or how do you know that as many as of, of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Now, why does he say that? How do you, Or do you not know? Because there were people there who didn't know. They weren't informed yet. They were already in a church or at least attending it, but they didn't know that. And again, from my personal experiences, I've noticed that, especially in the previous church I was in. <laughs> there was a lot of those people who weren't saved. Some of them, many of them were saved, but many of them weren't. They didn't know these key things. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's our sin nature. Now, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our acts of sin, but our acts of sin come, or they're produced by the sin nature that we have. So, both those things get taken care of by Jesus. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, but now he sets as the high priest or mediator between God and man, and he will grant salvation to anyone who asks for it. Uh, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So we should live to God too. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Far. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So see, he's building things in just as much as he's killing off things. Uh, by the way, that process never gets completed down here on earth. you got to wait till you die to get there. <laughs> Or get resurrected, whichever comes first. Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay, I could have left that one out. Uh, 1 John, that's important, but I'm going for speed now. 
1 John 1. First John 1, and it will be 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay. So he's going to do two things for us. Forgive our sins. That's our acts of sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our sin nature. He's going to do both those things. And that's part of the gospel message. It's not just what he did, but what he will do. You see, it's a, it's a whole package deal there. Um, the Bible itself gives us two concise... Uh, definitions of repentance. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it says, Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And an idol would include atheism and agnosticism. Any false religion. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So, that's a good stopping point, and we can try it again next week.